You're listening to a Natural Products Insider podcast, now on Google Play. With Judy Pizzazzaro, Senior Editor. Brought to you by Supply Side West, October 15th through the 19th in Las Vegas. Hi, and welcome to a Supply Side edition of the Healthy Insider podcast series. I'm Judy Bazazro, and with me on the phone today, I have Jim Tonkin. He is the president and founder of Healthy Brand Builders, a beverage consultancy company based right here in Arizona. He is co-chairing the How to Create Disruption in the Beverage Aisle workshop, taking place on Wednesday, October 16th at Supply Side West in Las Vegas. Jim, thanks so much for joining me on the phone today. Great to be with you, as always, Judy. Great. You know, let's just jump right into this. Beverages. Global beverage sales are expected to reach uh, about $2 trillion by 2021. But, you know, really over the years, we've seen a lot of growth in the functional beverage category, which I believe, you know, we have sales estimates at about $94 billion. Jim, can you talk about some of the market drivers and opportunities you're seeing in that particular category? Sure. Um, Clearly, no one would have expected that uh, you know, beverage sales would exceed $2 trillion. Today, we talk about trillions like we used to talk about billions. <laughs> um, when you look at the national debt and things like that, it's a, it's kind of a crack up to me. Nobody really understands how big $2 trillion is. But when you've got 7.5 billion people on the globe, obviously, people are drinking a lot of beverages. Um, I would say that the the market drivers and and where opportunity exists today are in a couple of areas. The first is um, around health and wellness. Um, you probably have heard or, or read or seen um, quotations uh, or articles written by the major uh, beverage companies around the globe, the Unilevers, the Pepsis, the Cokes, uh, and others, um, talking about health as, as a driver internally in their companies. Uh, it's if you look at companies like General Mills as an example, cereal companies, they are reorienting themselves dramatically, moving away from sugar-laden products with heavy preservatives, et cetera, to more natural or earthbound derivative uh, products. And part of that is all driven by personal nutrition and our desire to take better care of ourselves and therefore the health and wellness Base is really where all the growth is, and it's why we're very fortunate to be in the center of the functional beverage category. Um, we were both chatting before the interview started relative to coffee as an example. Um, coffee is still one of the most well-known and yet um, kind of taken for granted functional beverages uh, available in the marketplace. People drink it to get a little bit of energy, maybe a lot of energy, depending upon how tired uh, you are or how much you need to focus, and coffee delivers. So from that simplistic um, you know, singular source ingredient, uh, we, we've now seen a plethora of ingredients, uh, whether they're naturally derivative uh, or, God forbid, maybe synthetic, and most of those are moving out of the marketplace, by the way, more natural derivative products um, are coming to market based on botanicals and, and the infusion of herbs and spices and those kinds of things that are finding their way into beverages that actually add a function um, for, for the consumer, which is really um, uh, fun. 
you know, that's a great lead in. Um, let's chat a little bit about how brands are adapting to this new norm of clean label ingredients in beverages. Um, you mentioned a few trends that you're seeing in terms of ingredients such as botanicals and herbs. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. I think consumers today, Judy, are are really um, looking at their own diet. And as we've talked uh, previously about personal nutrition, which which is a a buzzword, but I think a lot of people are really opting into it. We have tremendous control um, uh, of the outcome of personal health based on what we feed ourselves. So if you think about y- your mouth as the, uh, as the entry hall, so to speak, to this large home that we live in, um, you open the front door, you can let anybody in you want. Um, so if you're letting crazy people off the street in, if you're letting people that are coming in with a dozen donuts uh, and, and the like, you're probably, from a health perspective, um, not going to be in the greatest uh, shape. And, and we have the ability, because we can close that door at any time, to be much more selective today. And I, I suggest looking through the peephole before you open up your mouth uh, metaphorically, uh, to, to kind of be mindful that what you, what you eat and what you drink is what you are. Um, I, I know as, as an elder statesman these days, uh, I, I do a, a very extensive um, physical every year. And um, the outcome of that has to do with blood work and heart health and cholesterol and triglycerides and all of these things that used to be kind of doctor-oriented, and most people didn't even know how to say those words or understand what they do to the human condition. But, um, but today, with personal nutrition and taking charge of our health, um, I think it's important that we understand the derivative compounds that, were, uh, that are available to us and that are actually being marketed to the mainstream consumer today. But when I talk about botanicals and, and herbs, Ayurvedic medicine, uh, Chinese herbal medicine, those kinds of things. They used to be outlier thought processes, and only very smart people that um, that were really involved in the early stages of personal nutrition and taking charge of of their own health um, opted into. Today, it's a much much bigger um, uh, ring of people, frankly, that that are opting into these things. The natural derivative compounds of of uh, botanicals, as an example, um, along with adaptogens, uh, which are just botanicals and and herbs that actually uh, focus on your body and they extract and bring to the forefront good things that your body can do uh, by by ticking them, uh, if you will, or kicking them, if you will, to to light the fire uh, in the body. Uh, And putting a lot of these things together is is a little troubling sometimes because we don't know what the outcomes are going to be. And I think uh, I'm a big believer in clinical data and and doing human clinicals uh, to predict outcomes. Um, we need to figure out when you put rhodiola with maca and guarana as an example using three botanicals, um, what's the outcome of those things? And at what levels do you include them in a beverage as an example or even in a food product um, so that you could have an expected outcome. Uh, as an example, if you compare uh, coffee, uh, an 85 to 125 milligram cup of coffee, you've had enough coffee to understand what that, that uh, 85 to 120 milligram consumption of an eight ounce cup of coffee will do to, to your body. And everybody reacts differently to that. 
So as we look to get more complicated and develop more complex ingredients using even more natural and derivative and or organic ingredients like botanicals, um, we still need to do a lot of work in terms of understanding what the, what the effect is on the human condition. But getting, ex getting very excited about less is more, um, cleaner products, um, more natural in derivation, moving away from preservatives and things that uh, that I think are uh, have been very problematic to the human condition, and and frankly are probably the part of the derivation of the um, of the turnover in health that that a lot of people in their 60s, 70s, and 80s are experiencing today because we ate a lot of things that really were not good for us, and we had no idea back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Okay, great. Now we were talking. You were talking a little bit about formulation. And we know when you formulate with functional ingredients, for instance, like using ingredients like proteins or botanicals, they can present, you know, real challenges for the product developer, especially in terms of taste. So, you, you know, you're dealing with flavor maskers and things like that. But what are the biggest hurdles a developer faces when they are developing innovative drinks that not only taste good, but they have to make sure that, that they deliver on efficacious doses of ingredients? It's a great question, and quite frankly, uh, many of the major development companies, flavor houses, et cetera, in the U.S. right now, Judy, are spending a lot of time trying to figure out how to use these newer ingredients that are coming down the pipe. You know, when you think back to the, the early 1900s when Coke and Pepsi and 7-Up were developed, it was pretty easy to put a little citric acid, sugar, and water, and flavor uh, in a bottle or a can and uh, deliver it to the consumer. And, and, uh, you know, and adding a little carbonation uh, to the process was also pretty easy to do. Today, we have a much more sophisticated palate. Um, our food sources are much greater than they were years ago and the ability based on the wonderful chefs and creative side of, of food and beverage today, um, that they're developing some amazing um, ingredient platforms and, and food stuffs that when you marry them together have um, uh, just exciting outcomes. And, and so our palates are changing and the, the desire to have more spice in our lives, and I don't mean that um, from the way you may think about it. I, I'm talking about, um, as an example, if you're a water drinker, at, at some point in time, typically your palate gets exhausted drinking just plain water because there's not much taste and therefore you get full before you get satiated from a flavor perspective. And so what flavorists and, and, uh, the, the, and the houses uh, that, that house them uh, today are looking at, at is, is how, do we, how do we excite that palate? How do we titillate the, the taste buds to the extent that we, we can really um, deliver some exciting new taste profiles? It's, it's the explosion of the turmeric base, as an example, using curcumin. Um, as a as a base ingredient that is now found in so many new foods, but if you go to uh, to India, for example, they, they've been they've been uh, turmeric is a staple and has been for hundreds of years. So as the global community comes together, we're finding an influence from around the globe that's that's uh, entering the borders of the United States, and because we're such a diverse culture here now, we're finding all of these ingredients. Um, are, are in the market. I mean, if you go to a lot of ethnic stores in LA or San Francisco or New York City, 
you can just be bowled over by the the number of new exciting flavor profiles that are available out there today. So having said all that, one of the one of the the hurdles and and the challenges that these flavor companies have is when you are are putting an ingredient like uh, ashwagandha as an example in a in a beverage. Ashwagandha doesn't taste very good on its own. And if you just put it in your mouth, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly objectionable taste profile. So there are two questions that have to be asked. One is, what's the uh, efficacious dosage to your question um, of ashwagandha that should go into a single serving of a beverage, as an example? Um, I would say that Ayurvedic medicine would probably have an answer to that, but it's more anecdotal. It's not clinically proven. So a lot of these ingredients that are now finding their way into beverages today, um, they're at all sorts of different levels. And uh, I, I think at some point the clinical uh, or, or provability aspect has got to catch up with this. Uh, and I think we're still a little behind the curve as it relates to that. There's just not enough clinical data uh, for us to be able to say that 50 milligrams of ashwagandha in an eight ounce beverage is the right amount as an example. Uh, I think what, what consumers are looking for are outcomes. And so if the product still has to taste good, that's the number one driver of a purchase incentive in the market today. It hasn't changed over all these years. No matter what the food is to include beverages, it has to taste good first. And then the, the trailing um, you know, attributes um, follow the taste. If it, the product tastes bad, um, you're not going to have uh, you're not going to have uh, consumers continuing to drink the product. Everybody knows in the old days when you had medicine, for example, um, you take a teaspoon of it, it could taste absolutely terrible for a cough for a cough or cold. Today, if you take any medicine that's not in a capsule or tablet, but it's in a liquid form, it's flavored and it tastes good, and so it's not objectionable. And so that hurdle has been dealt with by the pharma and dietary supplement companies. We're still working on a lot of that in the functional beverage world to try to take these proteins and botanicals and other things and turn them into really great tasting products. But it's happening. Okay, great. And Jim, I mean, this is this is your total wheelhouse. So can you give me some examples of brands that are really creating disruption in the functional beverage space? Sure. Um, you know, I, I hasten to, to use specific brand names, but I'll, I'll try to drop a few that, that your listeners may have a, uh, knowledge of or, or they may be consumers of as well. And, and they go across the spectrum. Uh, one of the questions that you asked me before was around protein. And as whey protein isolate has been a weightlifter's dream or, or a bodybuilder's dream for many, many years, the uh, the introduction of plant proteins such as um, pea proteins and rice proteins and chia proteins and and others are now finding their way into mainstream beverages today. Um, an example of that might be a brand like like um, uh, Ripple or uh, Koya K O I A um, and Koya even has a, a line and extension on their plant protein products that are keto friendly. So low sugar, um, you know, low carb, uh, and, and, and the product is, is doing incredibly well. Uh, and that's one that's been able to mask the protein taste, uh, from plant proteins. Um, 
Others uh, may be found in the kombucha space. As you'll probably recall, when kombucha first came to the market, um, we still found uh, a derivation of mushrooms at the bottom of the, the, the glass bottle, and, and sometimes it was an inch or inch and a half deep. Um, and many consumers got turned off by that. Those people that understand the value proposition of, of mushrooms said, I can deal with that and I'll, I'll be glad to eat that uh, or drink it um, uh, in the same way that people did many years ago when Snapple, uh, using, quote unquote, the greatest ingredients on earth, um, end quote, uh, had all sorts of, of ingredients in their product that also uh, precipitated out and sat at the bottom of the bottle, but people continued to drink the product anyway. So um, the, the kombuchas have morphed um, with the derivation of Kavita, which was like the second generation of, of um, those beverages around kombucha that actually made kombucha taste more mainstream, that didn't have the, uh, the sediment on the bottom of the bottle. And now, as you can see, the plethora of, of kombucha products and not having to get into specific brand names, most people that drink kombucha know their favorite and, and, and the ones, there are many in the market. They're very regional in orientation, very few are national. Um, and so if you're interested in kombucha and what kombucha can do for you, you can buy it in its current form. You can buy it um, accelerated with alcohol in it. So a company like Flying Embers, which, which is a, uh, an alcoholic kombucha, um, is, is now taking a, a flight in the marketplace. So that's a, a category I never really got that excited about, but apparently some consumers are really interested in it. Other areas that, that are uh, of interest to me are around cold brew coffee, uh, which has also grown dramatically over the last five years or so. Uh, we've had a couple of exits of small companies that have got to 50 to 75 million in sales, and then they were purchased by big players. Um, uh, the the uh, Chameleon uh, uh, brand comes to mind, uh, which was purchased by Nestle, uh, High Brew, uh, Kona Red. There's quite a number of them in the market now, and they're doing really well. Uh, but it basically is just using coffee and, and creating a different aspect of it from a cold perspective versus hot. There, there are um, additional products that, that I could, uh, as an example, um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with a direct-to-consumer product called Super Beats. Um, that particular brand I'm not really highlighting specifically, but it seems to be the biggest in the market, and they've spent the most money in, in a direct-to-consumer orientation. It's all around nitric oxide and the ability to open your capillaries and speed the blood through your system, being able to, 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 to uh, uh, help your heart uh, circulate blood quicker and faster. It's, it's um, a good thing for athletic performance, uh, and the like. And, and so there's a, a real application of a functional beverage coming from a, a vegetable, which is so amazing. And beets have been around for years and years and years, and now they're finding another use for it. Uh, in addition, there there is a berry that's found in the United States that grew wild here for many years called aronia. And I suspect that most of your listeners are not familiar with aronia, but you will be in the coming uh, months and, and years. There's a brand called Tohi, T-O-H-I, which is the largest player in that space. And frankly, aronia berries um, are the highest antioxidant fruit on the globe that we have been able to adjudicate. We, we used to talk about acai and blueberry and cranberry and uh, goji berry and others as being really high in antioxidants. Um, 
so uh, Tohi now has uh, has uh, bro- broken the glass ceiling, if you will, on the anti- antioxidant scale. And so I think you're going to be hearing a lot more from that particular berry as it relates to food and beverage inclusion and um, dietary supplementation relative to skin health and um, uh, internal body health, finding their way into cosmetics and things like that. So those are those are just a, a sampling of, of disruption. And I probably should also mention uh, before I stop this question, uh, CBD and cannabis. So the hemp industry is exploding right now. Um, it's, I call it cowboy and Indian land, uh, uh, metaphorically. There are a lot of players that have developed all sorts of in, uh, products in food and beverage that have no um, uh, clinical application. The dosage level is as, as uh, uh, large uh, uh, and, and, and then as disparate as uh, from five milligrams to 100 milligrams in a single dose. There's not any cl- human clinical trials around it, and that's, that's uh, the issue that I have with it. We don't know what the acceptable level is. We also don't know um, if, if you ingest CBD uh, you know, through a beverage in deference to, to uh, through a cream that you may apply to a, a sore area on a, on a muscle, um, even though they both end up in the bloodstream at some point in time, we don't know what the what the the right dosage is for it, and I think um, that will eventually uh, settle out. Whether it's by the FDA putting their foot into the into the market and saying this, this these are the parameters under which you, you need to operate, um, or there will be clinical data that will actually come to the forefront and and show what the uh, dosage level should be. I think it's exciting to look at a new, I call it the shiny penny in the beverage business right now, because there's so many CBD products coming to market. But the fact that you can't ship them across state lines and that there still are federal versus state regulations, um, they're murking, murking up the waters and making it very difficult for a lot of brands to understand what the playing field is and what the parameters are around bringing products to market to make sure that we're protecting consumers in the end, which is what the FDA's job is. So stay tuned more on the CBD space. Absolutely. Uh, And I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, at our Natural Products Expos, uh, we have a CBD summit. People are, it's standing room only. People just need to be educated and they're there, they're thirsting for knowledge. We're also going to be having a CBD workshop at Supply Side West. So, you know, a lot of the issues you brought up as far as um, you know, regulatory issues, uh, efficacy issues. Um, we'll be addressing those in uh, that session. So uh, I invite uh, all of our listeners to come to that uh, session as well. Sure. So, so Jim, switching gears, we've talked a lot about ingredients. If you don't have an ingredient, you don't have a product. <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> functional ingredients can cost more, and they can also be a little bit more difficult to procure. What, if I'm a brand, if I want to, you know, make this awesome functional beverage, what should I be thinking about uh, in terms of supply chain issues with functional ingredients? That's another really good question and one that I think is um, really on people's minds today, mostly because of the FDA's new guidelines relative to supply chain verification. Um, If you're uh, producing through a contract manufacturer today as a brand, um, clearly the contract manufacturer is going to require uh, an amazing amount of of uh, detail and um, and the ability to track 
the supply chain to verify where the actual ingredient came from, how it was shipped, um, what its effic efficacy is, um, is it organic or not? I mean, there's a whole bunch of different things that we can check the box on. Is it uh, is it fair trade? Is it uh, is it vegan? Is it uh, uh, you know, to just look at a label on any beverage out there today and you'll see the gluten-free and all the others. Um, you have to be able to, to substantiate what you're sharing in your food or beverage with the consumer um, with some semblance of, of legality. And therefore, there's a number of these certification agencies that have popped up, uh, whether they're self-serving relative to making money or they actually are providing a good service to the marketplace. I, I'm not, uh, not going to make a statement about that. Uh, I just would say if you're a brand and you've got a, an ingredient that you're bringing to the marketplace through a food or beverage in order to, uh, to apply it towards a specific target audience, you, you should be very vertically um, uh, integrated in that process and make sure that if the FDA comes a, a, a calling to your operation, you've got a dossier that is fully vetted that you've had legal review done by regulatory counsel on your label, on your uh, predominant display panel, on your package, to make sure that you're in compliance with the FDA. That's, that's uh, obviously very, very important. All the big companies um, won't touch any of this new, uh, new age uh, processing and the new ingredients that we've referred to in this podcast um, without understanding supply chain and supply chain verification. So with supply chain comes, God forbid, the product that you bring to market takes off. So, you know, do you, do you have enough supply to be able to fill the demand? If others copy what you're doing, what does that do to the market? Is that disruptive? Um, so you need to look at all those things before you get involved and, and you, you need to have a, a team um, looking at this process because in the end of the day, um, you know, when you start a, a business going after a brain health uh, phenomenon or if you, if you develop and have found an ingredient that could help stave off the effects of Alzheimer's or dementia, you know, that, that could be something consumers are incredibly interested in today because that field of, um, of, of health is growing dramatically and we're trying to find cures for, for both dementia and the subset of Alzheimer's uh, and, and the only way it's going to happen is by uh, these wonderful brands uh, that continue to develop pharma, uh, dietary supplement, food and beverage products that can help the condition. So uh, at the end of the day, I, I think the, the, the takeaway about supply chain is um, understand your supply chain, verify it, understand the size of, of, the, of the marketplace so that you don't run out of your, your ingredient. Is it available in multiple locations or a singular source, as an example? Um, and make sure that your dossier uh, around the brand is airtight, because I will tell you if a 483 comes your way from the FDA or any other kind of yellow or red flag from them, uh, the, the faster and more, the faster you come to the plate with uh, with the answers they're looking for, uh, the the better off you will be, and you'll have less and maybe even no disruption to your supply chain and to the to the market that you're serving. There's nothing worse than getting a product out into the marketplace and having your product pulled off the shelf because you're making wild uh, claims about it, or 
conversely, from the supply chain perspective, you, you've run out of supply or an act of God, force majeure happened and a hurricane uh, killed all of the crop that you were using to harvest that went into your beverage. And those things have happened. I've been involved in companies that have gone through those processes before. So redundancy, making sure that, that you've got a, a larger supply chain than you may think you need at, at one point, uh, or certainly at the beginning, is something that's really important uh, to think about. That's great advice, Jim. And for our listeners, this is just a, a glimpse of what uh, we'll be talking about at uh, Supply Side. So, Jim, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing you in October. Do you have anything else you'd like to add before we wrap this up? Well, I, I would only say this, uh, Judy, in a little self-serving way. We've got a three-hour uh, session on October 16th from 1.30 to 4.30. And I would say to any of your listeners who are coming to Supply Side, you need to make sure that this session gets onto your session list. Um, we've got some amazing uh, players that are going to be delivering information about the disruption in the beverage world and, and what's currently happening with some prognostication about what we see coming in the next year or two. So if you're a marketing executive or a CEO of a small brand or even a large brand or somebody in research and, and, and development who is being tasked with trying to develop the next um, Gatorade, um, you can't miss this session. Uh, we've got brand holders. We have R&D professionals. We have packaging uh, professionals. We have uh, a glimpse of the the marketplace and a review of the marketplace by uh, by major players um, who track data on a regular basis. So you will walk away with uh, maybe a little headache, which I would be delighted to help defray in the bar after uh, after our uh, session because you're going to be overloaded with lots of information. So come in and hear the disruptive uh, beverage industry summit. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much, Jim. And uh, I will see you in Las Vegas. My pleasure. Look forward to seeing you there. And remember, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. We hope. For more award-winning podcasts from industry experts, go to insider.com and click in the podcast section. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts or Google Play by searching Healthy Insider Podcast. Hit subscribe to never miss an episode. To join the conversation about the health and nutrition industry, leave a comment on the podcast's Twitter, Facebook, or SoundCloud account. This episode has been brought to you by Supply Side West, October 15th through the 19th in Las Vegas.